Welcome to Lessons for Life, where we seek to learn, love, and live the Word of God. Now, here is James Long Jr. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 4? Daniel chapter 4. The title for our sermon this morning is that God rules. Be humbled and take comfort. I was thinking, I love sports. And some of the greatest athletes, those that excel incredibly, are probably the most arrogant people that you probably know. They talk a lot about themselves. They talk a lot about their abilities. And unfortunately, the teams I root for are usually beaten by those arrogant players. It's, it's quite interesting. And, and you, you watch them and it's, and this person just continues to talk about themselves and their abilities and they make much of themselves. They don't oftentimes think about the team that's around them. They just make much of themselves. Pride. Pride is an amazing thing. And what we're going to see this morning is this that God humbles those that are proud, but he exalts those that are humble. And the question we have is, as we look at the story of Nebuchadnezzar and and watch him falling into a, a period of insanity in his life, the question for you and for me is this. None of us are probably ever going to have the power or the prestige or the possessions that Nebuchadnezzar had. But the question is that we have a problem that Nebuchadnezzar had, and it's pride. And the question is, what are we doing with it? Because that pride that rules in our hearts at times, it can bring about the destruction that went in Nebuchadnezzar's life as well. Look here with me in Daniel chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 37, but I just want to start with verses 1 through 3 because it's interesting. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It seems good to me to show the signs and wonders of the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Wow, he's writing here. He's speaking, and Daniel, as he wrote this book, is putting in a quotation, a a royal proclamation, right from the very lips of Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king. And what do we see? He's praising God. He's exalting God. He's extolling God. Jump at the end of Daniel chapter 4. Go to verses 33 and following, 34 and following. He says this, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is from everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of this earth and none can stay his hand. And verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right. His ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. 
These are not the words that you would expect from Nebuchadnezzar. As, as you've been with us over these last several weeks, we've been looking at this, this proud man, this arrogant man, this vile man, this violent man, is now all of a sudden praising and honoring the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What in the world happened to him? Right in the middle of this chapter is what we're going to find. He's bookending this chapter with, with his praise of God in the beginning and his praise of God at the end. And right in the middle, we find what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. We would be wise to learn from that. Would you pray with me as we begin this time? Lord, something radical happened in Nebuchadnezzar's life. We're going to learn about that this morning. Nebuchadnezzar, this vile, this violent, this possessive, proud, arrogant king, was humbled before you. And he looks up to heaven and he praises you for who you are and for what you've done. He says that we are nothing before you, that, we, that no one can stay your hand, no one can stand up against you, no one will ever be able to speak against your judgments. What in the world changed in this man's life? There was a radical change of heart, of his perspective, and where he was resting for his peace, Father. I pray this morning we would hear that. Though so many of us have the wrong perspective of you, so many of us have a wrong perspective of this world, and so many of us think we have peace, Father, and it's a counterfeit peace. Help us to find real peace in your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, someone asked me recently, uh, what do you do, James, and, and why do you do it? And, and to make it even more challenging, what this person did was they asked me to put that into one sentence. So now you may know I, I, I get an uh, opportunity to preach here and be a pastor here at the church. I have a counseling ministry. I teach in a university. I mean, I got a lot of things in the, on the irons going. And it's like, I've got to bring it down to one sentence. And how in the world am I going to do that? Have you ever tried to summarize your whole life, your whole career, your calling, all of your passions into one sentence? It's, it's definitely not easy. And, and so I will tell you this, that as I did it, I got this huge passion that came up. And my passion was reignited. I actually got refocused. I was encouraged. So what was the one sentence? And here's the one sentence. I help people were pain from their past and their present is influencing their perspective on life by teaching them about a person, principles and promises, and a pathway for change so that they can have peace, hope, and joy again in their lives. So I help people that are in pain, and the pain may be from their past, things that they've done or things that have been done to them, but they have been dominated by this pain in their past. Maybe that's you. And that pain is now influencing their lives today. Maybe that's you. And what I do is this. I teach them about a person. I teach them about God. I teach them about the Lord Jesus Christ. I teach them about the principles of God's word and the promises of God's word. And I give them a pathway for change so that they can have peace and hope and joy once again. That's why I love my job. I love this opportunity to be able to speak to people about Christ and to speak to people through the word and to speak to people about life and how they can have hope. Well, there's so many people today that are not there. They are dominated by things done to them. Maybe they're dominated by the hurts that have been done to them, the pains, how people have mistreated them. I pray that Daniel chapter 4 will speak to you today, 
That being dominated by what people have done to you will leave you bitter and lonely and resentful and it will not lead you to contentment in life. Or maybe you're sitting here dominated by your own sin, the things that you've done, the things that you have failed in the past and how you failed to honor God. And what has that done for you? You believe that God is not great enough to deal with your guilt. You don't feel the freedom and the forgiveness that we just sung about. What I want you to know is this, whether it's been done to you or done by you, that the Christ of the scriptures is greater. That the hope of the scriptures is greater. That you can have peace, you can have hope, you can have joy, you can be forgiven, and you can be free. Well, Nebuchadnezzar found himself at a turning point in his life. Now, as we've been going through Daniel chapter 4, what we found is that Daniel has been taken from his land, you remember, with his friends. His three friends are now here in this new land in Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar has been hitting the nation of Israel over Judah over and over again. In three waves, he has attacked them. The first wave, Daniel and his three friends came, and then there were subsequent waves that are going to come. He finally laid siege to Babylon, um, to um, Judah in 587, and he finally sacked the city. And what he did with Zedekiah, Zedekiah was the king at the time, he did a horrific thing with Zedekiah. He took Zedekiah, he took his sons in front of him, he slaughtered his sons in front of him, and then he gouged out Zedekiah's eyes. So the very last thing he got to see was the death of his sons. This is the man Nebuchadnezzar that we're talking about, this this evil, vile man. But he was also a prosperous man. He he had such prosperity, such possessions. He, He created so many things. In fact, the Hanging Garden was the Hanging Gardens was one of the seven known wonders of the ancient world. That, that is what Nebuchadnezzar looked at. So we're looking here somewhere probably around 563 B.C., maybe a little bit earlier. He's going to die in 562 B.C. And what we're going to see is this. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be up on his throne, on his castle, and he's going to look out at all his possessions, and he's going to say... I did it. He's actually going to sing Frank Sinatra's song. I did it what? My way. I won't, I won't sing for you, but um, thankfully. Um, but in many ways, that's exactly what he's doing. I did it my way. I am a rock. I am a what? Oh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, so I got to stop pulling out those songs. How many of us think of ourselves as um, solo, autonomous? rulers. I'm the master of my own destiny. You know, I'm the king. I am the king of my ship. All of those type of things. Well, that's where Nebuchadnezzar was. And we see that here. So Nebuchadnezzar, we see he starts in Daniel chapter 4. He begins with this praise, this proclamation. He wants all the peoples and all the nations, all the languages to know that God is ruler. God is king. And it's interesting. You can't see it in your English Bible, but this fir- the first three verses is written in Aramaic. So it's the language of the world at the time. So he is saying, I want everybody here to know that God rules and reigns. What is it? What would it be like if, if our presidents got up and actually did that? What would it be if the kings and the queens of this world actually got up and said, God reigns? Well, a number of them do that. They don't do 
what Nebuchadnezzar is going to do, he's going to talk about his sin. He's going to talk about his failures. When was the last time you heard a ruler do that? When was the last time you heard a president do that? He says this, peace be multiplied to you. It seemed good to me to show you the signs and wonders of the most high God and what he's done for me. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. He gives a proclamation and then he gives praise. But then we see in verse 4, now he's going to get to the issue. Nebuchadnezzar calls the wise men of Babylon to come to interpret a dream. He has another dream. But only Daniel can interpret this dream. Look at verses 4 through 9. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. It's interesting, ease. What is he talking about, ease? He had peace, he had prosperity, he had possessions, he had power. That was the ease. He was kicking back. He was looking over his kingdom, and he was saying, this is pretty cool. I've got it made. I am self-made. I am self-reliant. It is all about me. I am invincible. How many of us actually feel that way? You drink and you get into a car. I can't hurt anybody. I'm invincible. I use drugs. I'm invincible. I can go to bed with whoever I want. I am invincible. That's us, right? It's easy to talk about Nebuchadnezzar, but when we bring it home to us, that's uncomfortable. But that's us. We are at ease, thinking that we're living at peace. But it's a fake peace. It's a counterfeit peace. It's a false sense of security. It does not end well. That if you look at Scripture, Scripture says, this is the way you should go walk in it. And if you do not, you may get away with it temporarily, but I will tell you the road doesn't end well. Nebuchadnezzar is going to find that. And then he goes and he says, I saw a dream that made me what? Afraid. And I laid in my bed and the fancies and the voices of my head alarmed me. He was panicked. He was terrified. He was horrified by what he saw. Well, what did he see? So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought to me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. And then the magicians and the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but none could make it known to me and its interpretation. Isn't that us today? We can't figure out the problem, so what do we do? We turn on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News to get our answers to the world's problems. The world's answers to the problems and the answers are found in this book. But we don't go there. When was the last time you had a world leader get up and open the Bible and say, here's the reason why we struggle today? We don't do that. Well, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He does what all of us do. We turn to the world for its answers. And the world comes in and they give us a bunch of gobbledygook, but there's no real answer that is here. And as Nebuchadnezzar heard this, he was panicked, he's alarmed. He says, you guys are not bringing me anything. And at last, Daniel came in before them. And his name was Belteshazzar. If you remember for our first uh, chapter, um, his name, his Babylonian name was Belteshazzar, was a form of that God protects, Baal protects, rather than Daniel's name about God as judge. 
So, so we have here, at last, Daniel comes before me, and Belteshar is our, after the name of my God, because uh, Nebuchadnezzar is talking about his own God, and he says, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, magicians, because I know the spirit of the holy God is in you and no, no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the vision of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. It's so interesting that he's looking for an answer of what does this mean? What is this dream, which we're going to hear about in a moment? What does it mean? That is what we're looking for. Why do people shoot up schools? Why? Why do we do the evil that we do today? Don't we want an answer? And you turn to psychologists, you turn to sociologists, you turn to philosophers, and they'll give you all of the answers, and the world's answers are going to give you no real answer. But what he sees in Daniel is something different, because he sees the God behind Daniel. He sees a holy God. He sees a God that is with Daniel. He lives in Daniel. He's not only a holy God, but he's a relational God. He sees a God who is an all-knowing God because no mystery is too difficult for you. The thing with Nebuchadnezzar is interesting to me is that he knew certain theology, but it wasn't practical. He knew of a holy God. He knew of a relational God. He knew of a God that was all-knowing, but he had not made that God personal. And that is what I'm calling each one of you today to do. That you need to know God, not just know about God, but you need to know him. It's interesting when you think about this interpretation of the dream, it reminds me of Joseph in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 41. You remember when Joseph was brought before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh similarly had a dream, and he had similarly looked to all of his religious leaders, and they couldn't help him. He looked at all the worldly counsel, and they couldn't help him. And this is what Pharaoh said about Joseph, which sounds familiar. He says, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all the people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. You remember the story of Joseph. Joseph was in prison, and then he has been exalted because God told him a vision to tell to the king of that time. So Nebuchadnezzar praises God, verses 1 through 3. Nebuchadnezzar calls the wise men of Babylon to interpret the dream, verses 4 through 9. And then verses 10 and following, we see Nebuchadnezzar recalls the dream. Now he's going to tell us the dream. We've been trying to hear this. And what I want you to know is this. As Daniel is writing this, he is calling the people of God to be comforted. He wants them to know that even though you're in exile, and right now maybe a leader isn't in power that you don't like, and maybe you're under great bondage right now, but I want you to know that what seems to be the case is not really the case. That God still rules and reigns. Be comforted with that. That's what Daniel is writing this to. He is saying to you that this king who seems so great will be cut down, and your God rules. Oh, what good comfort. But now let's look at the dream. Nebuchadnezzar calls the dream, verses 10 and following. And he says this, The vision of my head, as I lay in bed, as it were, I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth. 
And its height was great, and the tree grew and became strong, and to the tops reached heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit was abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of heaven lived in its branches, and all the flesh was fed from it. So he starts with this dream. I will say this, that trees are often used to be symbolized as rulers in the Old Testament. So as we talk about trees, sometimes we are talking about rulers. So this tree is talking about a rulership. And what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is this. I want you to think about this tree, which is stretching to heaven. And it, it reminded me of, in Genesis, you remember the Tower of Babel. You remember as they were building this Tower of Babel, they were trying to build on human ingenuity and human achievement. And they said, we can even reach heaven. And God thwarted them in Babel. And this is the exact same place, Babylon and Tower of Babel. And it's in the exact same place. That the God of this world is trying to make us rise up, but the God of heaven says, I rule and I reign. I will raise up and I will put down. So that's the dream. Now he talks about a second part of the dream in verse 13. He says, I saw a vision in my head as I lay in bed. A watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven and he proclaimed aloud, said thus, chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the beast of the field live, flee from under it and the birds of the branches. So now what was there and vibrant is now gone. What was spread out has now been struck down. The Holy One here is probably a holy angel. And what he's saying is that there is a destruction, there's a devastation that is coming upon him. This is not a completely destroyed tree because watch here what it says, but leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, this to keep everyone else away, amid the tender grass of the field. So it is not completely destroyed. So we've got a tree, we've got a watcher that comes from an angel that comes and chops down this tree and strikes it down. But watch what happens here. The dream, the watcher, but I want you to see that the tree is personified. It says this, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Him? Who's him? Let his portion be with the beast of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man. Let the beast mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. We've gone from a tree to a man. And that's probably what scared Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar saw this dream, but he heard of a him and he had a sneaking suspicion that it was about him. And then it goes on. The sentence is to be the decree of the watcher and the decision of the word of the Holy One to the end that the living may know that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and gives to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Really, actually, if you want to circle a verse, this is the key verse in the whole chapter. Verse 17. It's actually repeated several times in this chapter, three other, two other times in this chapter, that the Most High God rules. That's where I get the title, God Rule. 
God rules the kingdom of men and gives to him who he wants. God is in charge. He is in charge of the rulers of this world. The president that we have today is because of God's sovereign choice. The president that we did not have today is because of God's sovereign choice. Every king, every ruler, every queen, every prince, every power that is in this world is because of God's sovereign choice. Sometimes it is for blessing. Sometimes it is for judgment. But it is God who raises up. And it is God who removes He lifts up leaders, and then he sets others down. So verse 17 is basically the key point. What he is saying is this, that there is a God who is greater than us. So now Nebuchadnezzar, verse 18, asks Daniel to interpret the vision. Verse 18, it says, This I dreamed, O King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, Daniel, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men in the kingdom were not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of a holy God is in you. Once again, holy God in you and knows all things. So he makes a request. It's interesting that he has this really good theology. This really good theology, but it is not practical. It is not personal. He's missed it. So now in verse 19 and following, Daniel's going to interpret the dream. So here's the interpretation. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts were alarmed. What amazes me is this. This man, Nebuchadnezzar, was pretty evil to Daniel and to his friends. He had taken him as a teenager from his home. He had destroyed the temple. He had destroyed his plan, he, uh, his, pe- his people. He has now taken him into bondage. He has done evil after evil after evil. And watch how Daniel treats this vile and violent man. He's dismayed. He's alarmed. He says, to the king, Belteshazzar, let not your dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar said, my lord, may the dream be far for others who hate you and its interpretations for your enemies. I wonder how many of us who are stuck in pain because of what things people have done to us in our past, how many of us would actually be worried about that enemy? How many of us would be worried about them, that loving our enemy and praying for those who persecute us, which is so antithetical to our, uh, to our world, but that's exactly what Jesus wants us to do. And that's what Daniel showed. You remember in Daniel chapter 1, we had talked about how respectful he was to the people. Well, he's doing it again. Daniel is faithful to his earthly king. How is he faithful? He's showing mercy. He's showing kindness. He's showing compassion. He's showing respect. He's caring for this earthly king who is a vile and evil man. But he doesn't stop there. He's faithful to this earthly king, but he's more faithful to his heavenly king. Because watch what he says in verse 20. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, so its tops reached heaven, was visible to the ends of the earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit was abundant, and in which food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whom branches the birds of the heavens lived, it is you. So the dream that was a vision that this tree is going to be chopped down. Now it has been personified. Now finally, Daniel sticks his finger out and says, it's you. It reminded me of this passage in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, remember when Nathan, the prophet, came to David. 
And David was given this dream or this this um, illustration, and he was talking about, Nathan was saying that it is you, David, who killed Uriah and took his wife. It is you, David, who's an adulterer. It is you, David, who's a murderer. Well, Daniel's doing the same thing here. Now, this is scary, and I don't. I, I was thinking about this this week. It's hard enough to get into a pulpit and preach and tell people that they're sinners. I mean, who likes to do that, right? And I mean, I guess in hundreds of people, you know, I could sit here and say that because I'm a little bit distant. But when you get into a room with somebody one-on-one and actually have to tell them that they're sinners, that is really uncomfortable. But to stand before the king of the time, who's a violent, violent man, who you already know threw your friends into a fiery furnace because he didn't like what they did, I wonder how many of us would be bold enough to share the truth with the king, as Daniel was. Daniel was faithful to his earthly king, but he was more faithful to his heavenly king. He was honest. He, he, he confronted him. Jay Adams, a biblical counselor, said this, that counseling is really about caring confrontation out of concern. I love that care about them. That's what Daniel's showing. He cares about Nebuchadnezzar, but he confronts Nebuchadnezzar, caring confrontation because he's concerned for Nebuchadnezzar. I wonder how many of you have friends today that are on a broad path to destruction, but you're afraid to say anything to them because you're afraid to lose them as friends. You probably never have your eyes plucked out or thrown into a fire because you confront them. Are you bold enough? Am I bold enough to speak the truth to them? Well, Daniel was. He says, it is you, O king. And then he goes on. He says, you have grown and become strong. Your greatness has become grown, has grown and reaches to the heaven, your dominion to the earth. And because the king saw the watcher, the holy one, that was the angel, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with dew, and let his portion be with the beast of the field, till seven periods of time pass over. This This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon you, O Lord the king. And here it is, that you be driven from among men, that your dwelling shall be of the beast of the field, that you should be made to eat grass like an ox, and you should be wet with the dew of heaven, for seven periods of time shall pass over you. Wow. That took a lot of guts to tell the king of that time that, you know what, You're going to be shut down. You're going to be brought down. But this warning was given out of the kindness of God. That God had come to Nebuchadnezzar out of the kindness and says, here's the warning. I am warning you. This is the judgment that is coming. I was thinking about how many people sit here in this congregation and hear warning after warning coming from this pulpit and just pass by it. Maybe you get a little schemish, you know, squeak, whatever. You walk out of the service and you feel a little uncomfortable. But then you go on your way. You don't think about it. You don't think about the sin that is being confronted in your life. You don't think about the warning that has been given to you. You just walk away. And what I want to say is this, that God is such a gracious God. The fact that you are given a warning is because God is merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
He doesn't want to bring about the judgment in your life for those that are going to come to faith in him. What he wants you is to turn. He wants you to bend your knee to him and come to him. He sent his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live a life that you could never live and to die a death in your place. What he is calling you, he's beckoning you, come. But he says that there is a time where the blessing and the warning will end and the judgment will come. So Nebuchadnezzar hears this. Look at verse um, 17 with me. In 17, it says this, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers and the Holy One to the ends of the earth that the Most High rules and the kingdoms of men give to them will set over them the lowliest of men. Then jump down to verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sin by practicing righteousness and your iniquity by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. Do you see it? What he's saying is the most high rules, and then what he says is I've given you a warning, but I am begging you, leave your sin and repent. Daniel is calling out to to Nebuchadnezzar to turn. So important. He says, break away from your sin. He's inviting him to repent. He's inviting him to turn away, to turn towards God. It's a warning, but it's a promise. The promise is if you turn away from your sin and turn towards God, there is forgiveness and freedom available to you. I was thinking of how many times in Scripture did God give a warning and then delay that warning, delay the judgment? You remember back in the Old Testament, in Noah's time, I believe it was 120 years from the time that Noah started to build that ark to the time of the flood. A hundred plus years, the warning was given and people didn't listen. I was thinking of Jonah. In Jonah's time, Nineveh was given 40 days. Here is the punishment that is going to come. Turn. And God delayed for 40 days. And in this case, what we find is that God delayed a year. Now, Nebuchadnezzar probably walks out of that meeting with Daniel, and he's a little shaken, probably like some of us do. And what we do is we walk out of the congregation that day, and we're a little shaken, and we're saying, wow, i got to get my life right. And what we do is we, we kind of fix ourselves up. We do some external and temporal things to do better. You know, maybe I'll go to that Bible study. Maybe I'll catch that prayer meeting on Wednesday night. And we'll do all of these things thinking that it will account for something. But we change superficially and temporally. We do not change internally. That's what I believe probably happened with Nebuchadnezzar. He started, he was feeling uncomfortable, and he did things right initially. But then what ends up happening is he notices no judgment. Next day, no judgment. Next day, no judgment. Now it's a year. (laughs) No judgment. And he walks out in verse 28, and we see his pride. Watch this. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace. And he's looking out, and the king said this, Is it not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power and the royal residence for my glory and my majesty? Listen to that. Me, myself, and I, it's all about Nebuchadnezzar. Such pride, such arrogance. He refused to repent. Got me thinking about the roof. Going back to David again, you remember he saw Bathsheba from a roof? 
There's something about a roof that when you are on a roof, especially of the palace, you look down on everybody. He looks out and he looks down on everybody and he exalts himself. He thinks he's pretty good. He's pretty good hot stuff. He looks at all his prosperity. He looks at his, all of his possessions. He had the seven wonders, one of the seven wonders of the world out there. As he looked out, he says, my kingdom, my glory, my right, home me. And immediately from pride, he went to punishment. Verse 31, while the words were still on his mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom, your sovereignty, has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be of the beast of the field, and you shall be made to eat like grass, like an ox. You will become like an animal. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will immediately. The word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with dew from heaven, till he grew, his hair grew like an eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. How long was this? I don't know. Some say seven years. It could be seven phases of time. It could be a completed time. I'm not sure. But it was long enough. Long enough for his hair to grow, his nails to grow, and he's eating like an animal. He goes from being the king of kings, supposedly, of this world, to an animal. It's really interesting when you think about sin. See, when God create, God is sovereign. God is over all of us, and then he created us lower than him. It's God, and then it's us, us. We are actually even higher than the angels. We are going to actually judge angels. So believe that or not, there's God, then there's us. There's a great gap. But then there are angels below us. And then all the creaturely things of this world, and we are called to rule over all of that. But because of sin, what do we do? Instead of becoming like God, we become like what? Animals. If you look in this world, what we do We kill babies in a womb. Animals. We jump into bed with almost anybody. Animals. We murder people. Animalistic. That is what sin does. It distorts who we really are. Instead of being like God, we are like this animalistic world. And that is what this proud man is going to experience. Verse 34 is the praise, the change. It says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven. Instead of looking down and outward and down at people, what he's doing is now he's looking upward. And he looks upward to heaven. And he lifts up his eyes and reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will and the host of heaven among the inhabitants of earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Wow. He's gone from a groveling animal to a praising man. Carmelo probably would have put him on the praise team. Yeah, maybe not. Verse 36, at the same time, my reason returned to me. 
And the glory of my kingdom and majesty and splendor returned to me, and the counselors of my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. We see this proud man has been humbled, and now he's exalted. Instead of looking out, instead of looking down, he looks up. So many of us probably should take counsel from that. Some of us in this world look outward to this world for the answers. They will fail you. Some of you look down on other people so that you feel better. That will fail you. Some of you look within for answers. That will fail you. The answer is to look up. As you look up, your reasoning will be restored. It will come back to you. You will start to see with new ways. So what we see is this. You remember the perspective I help people who are in pain from their past? And I give them a perspective on life because we talk about a person, principles, and a pathway for change? He started to get a sense of the person. He started to understand the principles of God's word, and he understood the path for change. So he could have peace, hope, and joy in his life. So I want to end with this. I want you to know this, that God is in charge. God rules. It's interesting, when you hear about God's rulership, that will do one of two things in humanity. It will cause us to humble ourselves and praise him, or it will cause us to rebel and resist him. Is God sovereign? Yes, he is. Is he in rulership? Yes, he is. Do you submit to his rulership? That's the question that you and I have to answer. See, God is in charge, and our hope in our troubling time is that we have a God who rules and reigns. What you see outside is not an indication of what is happening in heaven. It is not an indication of what is going to happen at the close of the scriptures. It is not an indication of what God is going to do when he comes back to judge this earth. Nothing that you see today changes the fact that God rules. Be humbled. Take courage. Look here at verse 35. I love this because this is really good theology. He says in verse 35 that all the inhabitants of the earth are as nothing. The first thing that we need to recognize to be humbled is that people are nothing outside of God. There's a wrong theology that says that God saved you because you are worthy. That is baloney. We are creatures. God saved us because he is worthy. And so we are nothing. We are like a vapor. Paul Pot, gone. Mussolini, gone. Hitler, gone. Bin Laden, gone. Madoff, gone. Long, gone. We're here for a moment, but we're just a breath. We are nothing. Second thing he says here, which is good theology, is that God does what he wants. He says he does according to his will. It's not about my will, it's about his will. You remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, not my will, but let yours be done. Such good theology to remind ourselves that I am nothing, he is everything, and that he does what he wants. It's good theology to remind myself that God cannot be stopped. It says he does according to his will, and then it says no one can stay his hand. 
He promised Nebuchadnezzar that he was going to be judged, and it happened. No one can take that away. All of Nebuchadnezzar's power and prestige was never going to keep him from falling under that judgment. The only thing that was going to prevent him was Nebuchadnezzar seeking forgiveness from God. We're nothing before God. God does what he wants. He cannot be stopped. And then the fourth thing, no one can question God. It says, or who can say to him, what have you done? Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that there's going to be a day where every mouth will be stopped. There's nothing that we're going to be able to say that, God, you're wrong, because God is a just and holy and righteous God. He does what is right. And our mouths are stopped. That's exactly what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. He stopped talking. He started praising. As a result of that, when we think about that, it reminds us, as God said through Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, it says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. But he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. And in these I delight, declares the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. What God is saying to you and to me is this. Don't be trusting in your abilities. They will fail you. Trust in me. So I want you to think about this. I've loved this book of Daniel. Four chapters in, and what do we see? In the very first chapter, we see a God who gave. You remember? As I got a chance to preach on that, we talked about a God who gave his people into judgment under Nebuchadnezzar. He, God, gave favor to Daniel and his three friends, and he gave them positions in power. He, he took fruit and made them strong. God gave. That's what we saw in first chapter, chapter one. In chapter two, we see that God reigns. If you remember, we see that Nebuchadnezzar had this dream and he's fearful and his rulers cannot figure that out. And then Daniel comes and tells him that God reigns. And at the end of chapter 2, we even see Nebuchadnezzar praising God on some level for who he is. So we see God gave in chapter 1. We see that God reigns in chapter 2. We see that God delivers in chapter 3. The, the three friends are thrown into a fire. And it looks like there's a sure death, but the fourth man, Jesus Christ probably, rescues them from Nebuchadnezzar because God delivers you. God gives, God reigns, God delivers. And we see in this fourth chapter, God rules. I surrender all, right? All to Jesus, I surrender. I surrender all. And he shall what? Reign for what? Can you say it with me? And he shall what? Reign for ever and ever. Okay. So let's close it with this. Pride is the central issue that is here, and God is the central ruler. Pride puts your trust in yourself rather than putting your trust in God. Pride seeks your own glory rather than the glory of God. Pride praises yourself rather than praising God. 
Pride forgets God rather than remembering his blessings. Pride seeks, doesn't seek God, but humility does. Pride thinks of our name instead of exalting God's name. Pride is contention in life rather than humility, which is contentment in life. Pride is conceited rather than gracious. Pride loves self rather than loving others. Pride thinks of self rather than exalting others. Pride puffs up rather than being lifted up. Pride hardens rather than softens. Pride confesses other people's sins rather than our own. Pride will cause your plans to go awry, and pride will lead you to destruction. You know, there was a king who left his throne and humbled himself. And though he was rich, yet for your sake and mine, he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. See, there was a king who left his throne and humbled himself and became a man. And there was a king who, though he was truly holy, took upon sin upon himself. And though because he was the righteous giver of life, he died for us. And though he never needed to be raised, he was raised for our justification. That king, Jesus, is the exact opposite of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar needed to be humbled so he could be raised up. Jesus Christ was humbled for you so he could be raised up to a place where there is no more person that will ever stand before Christ again. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So I want you to remember the, the Daniel and his three friends. You remember Daniel's name was, in Hebrew, God is my judge. God judges his people. You remember Hananiah, his name was God is gracious. God is so gracious to you, as he was to Nebuchadnezzar. He gave him 12 months to turn. Maybe some of you have had much more than 12 months. I pray today is the day that you would turn and trust him. Mishael, his name is God, is who is like God. There is no God like Christ. There is no God like the Father. There is no God like the Son, like the Holy Spirit. And Azariah means God is our help. Hear the gospel there. Know that God is here for you. Hear the warning. Turn to him. Trust him today. Would you pray with me? Father, it's, um, it's an amazing story of Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know if he was really saved or not. It'd be interesting to see if we were going to see him in heaven. I would hope to. It would be an amazing story to hear of a man who was so vile. His sin was so great, but your grace was greater. Father, perhaps there are people that are here that are so focused on what they've done in their lives that they're failing to recognize that your son's grace and gospel transformation is greater than any sin that is here. The only sin that can't be dealt with is the sin that is not repented of. So I pray that people would turn to you today. Maybe there are people today that are so dominated by what people have done to them. Daniel could have been there, his friend, three friends could have been there, but, but Daniel was so caring and so compassionate. He looked at this earthly leader and he saw that he needed gospel grace. And Daniel shared that with him. I pray that you would help us to do that today. I pray for our lives, Father, that as we go out into the world, we're probably never going to have to go into a fiery furnace. 
probably never going to have ourselves deposed like, like Nebuchadnezzar was. I pray today would be the day that we would go out boldly to speak truth because we care about people. We confront them because we're concerned for them and we point them to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been Lessons for Life with James Long Jr. We hope you've been blessed. For more information, go to jameslongjr.org.